Good morning. My name is Fritz. I'm hearing a little thumping there, Ben. Is that me? Is that my coat? Is that something else? You're shaking your head. Is one of those? All right, let me know if there's something I can do. Uh, my name is Fritz. I'm also one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for leading in place of Dallas this morning and the other musicians. And thank you, Tony. Um, if you don't know, Tony uh, has a different status than he did a couple months ago. He is now under the care of the Ohio Valley Presbytery, which means he now is free to do certain things. That's rumbling, isn't it? Let me take the, I'd love to take my coat off. Let's see if that does it. That's not doing anything, is it? Should I get the other mic, Andrew? Sounds like a storm's coming in. Yes, hang with me. Um, so Tony's status has changed. Uh, Murray, who's not here, he's with our youth at a retreat this weekend. Murray's status is about to change. He's going to uh, go from uh, an assistant pastor, Lord willing, if he is voted, to an associate pastor. And so he has more freedoms in that regard. Uh, it's really all about status. The reason that people will receive these shoeboxes and maybe receive the message of the gospel is because if you are poor and you don't have anything, you don't have a status in this world, the status that Jesus offers you means a ton. That's why in our culture and country it is hard for us to enter the kingdom of heaven because we have so much status associated with wealth and things that we have. It's all about status, isn't it? My dad worked for General Motors for 36 years. And for 36 years, he worked long days and sometimes nights. And when he would come home, he would lay in his lazy boy for an hour with his eyes closed and occasionally eat peanuts. And he smoked for 36 years, partially because of the stress that went along with that job, but 36 years later, something happened. He was offered an early retirement. And once he was retired, and they threw that big celebration party for him, and they gave him some gag joke plaque, he changed. He went from working to retired. He actually had this uh, little... Um, license plate he put on the front of his Bronco that said in very glittery letters, retired. He was different from there on out. He actually gave up smoking. He was kinder. He was more loving. His status had changed. We have been saying all through the first five chapters of Romans that our status has changed fundamentally through Christ by simple faith in another, you are now right with God and right with His law. You are declared perfectly righteous in God's eyes. By God's free grace, we are declared righteous in His sight based not on what we do, but based on what Christ has done, is the most freeing news in the world. And let me just say this before we go any further. If that hasn't captured your heart, it's either become old news to you, 
or it's no news to you and you need the good news. Let's talk about that. We would love to see people become Christians through this series. And we would love to see that free you to be a different person than the person you are trying to be through your outward behavior and performance. That's what should happen as the message of the gospel takes root in us. Our status has changed fundamentally, and therefore what we're going to see through the next several chapters is that leads to fundamental changes. I want to say that again. Those who are fundamentally, fundamentally changed, Murray will edit that out, those who are fundamentally changed, who have a new status with God, that will lead to fundamental changes in your life from the inside out. Paul will get at this subject through the next several chapters. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think Tony wrote about this a couple weeks ago, said that when you preach Romans and you preach the gospel, what should happen is people get so wrapped up in that fundamental change. They get wrapped up in free grace, what we talked about last week, the reign of grace, the abounding grace, the cascading grace, the overflowing grace. In other words, that you can't out God. It will lead to some questions. It will lead to maybe you asking the question that Paul is asking today in chapter 6. So let's give attention to God's Word and to this very question that Paul deals with using an ancient sort of method, almost like a catechism question and answer. Chapter 6, verse 1. Remember, Paul's been talking about abounding grace. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion or jurisdiction over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law. Your status has changed. You are under grace. Let's again pray. God, thank you for your word. As I confess to the elders, Lord, this passage has intimidated me uh, more than election, more than what, what you say about Israel in chapters 10 and 11. Uh, Lord, there is such a beautiful truth going on here. Would you make it clear to us as those who have been changed by the gospel, those who have been declared righteous, that righteousness would flow out of us. Lord, would you make it clear and simple enough, Lord, that a child could understand? Would you make it deep enough that we could wade in the rivers of your grace and what it produces today through your Holy Spirit? Amen. Let me ask you this morning a question. What do all of these people in the New Testament Gospels have in common? If you're familiar with the New Testament, you will be familiar with these people. If you're not, I would encourage you to go back and read the Gospels. It's a great place to learn of Jesus and the Bible. Uh, but, but those who know the New Testament, the woman who had a blood issue for 12 years... Uh, the guy that was ruled by a plurality of demons, the guy we call Gary the Naked Man, Jairus' daughter, who was very, very sick and dying, Lazarus, who was dead, Zacchaeus, who was a fraudulent tax collector, the adulterous woman that was about to be stoned, uh, a leper who came to Jesus, a Samaritan woman at a well, Bartimaeus, who was blind. What do all of those people have in common? You might say several things, but I want you to think about the fact that they were all changed by Jesus. They all encountered Jesus. They all met Jesus. And when you were met by Jesus and you meet Jesus and when you encounter Jesus... And when you experience Jesus' power, something happened to all of them. They all went away changed. Would you agree? When you are fundamentally touched by Jesus, you will be changed at a fundamental level and it will change your life. That's what we're looking at today. As Paul has has spread out this feast in five chapters that through justification by faith, this righteousness that you and I all long for, we know that we need, it is gifted to us in Christ. Hallelujah. It leads to fundamental changes. In other words, what we're going to be looking at today in the next several weeks is those who have been forgiven much and I would add, declared righteous before God, will love much. When grace abounds, sanctification will abound. 
we begin again with Paul's question. That's not how some people will take it. And maybe you have wrestled with this as well. Paul asked this very common question. Matter of fact, it was alluded to in an early chapter, and we're going to see it next week as well. It's the question, well, if grace abounds, if God's grace is, is sufficient for all my sin, if it's eternal and everlasting and it's, it's infinite, you can't out it, then why not just sin more so that God's grace will abound more? It is interesting how we will come up with excuses to sin, isn't it? Even intellectual, doctrinal ones. When I was angry at my computer yesterday, I said, well, God, I'm justified by this sermon, and therefore you've got to print it. Even, even though I put a new toner cartridge in it, it didn't work. And all of a sudden, my status is up for grabs. No, it's not, Fritz. But we will make all sorts of excuses to sin. It's this good old, what theologians call, antinomian, antinomian argument. That simply means against the law. In other words, if grace abounds, what, what place does the law really have in my life? What place does obedience and all of that? Uh, doesn't grace, if you just preach the gospel, doesn't it just lead to licentiousness, license of people doing whatever they want? What place does the law have in the Christian's life? Holiness, behavior, lifestyle, all that stuff. That's where we're going the next several weeks, so hold on to your seats. Let's go back to verse 1, the question, if grace abounds, why not continue in sin that grace would keep abounding? Paul's answer in verse 2 is emphatic. No way. No. You have been fundamentally changed, and that leads to fundamental changes. And today, we're going to see three ways that that occurs. Your relationship to sin has changed. Your relationship to Jesus has changed, and you have changed. First of all, your relationship to sin has changed. Verses 2, verses 7, and then in a minute, verse 9. Look again at verse 2. Paul goes, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Look at verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. There's lots of discussion about what Paul means. Really what he's getting at is for a Christian, one who is justified, one who has this new status, one who is a saint, one who is seated with God in the heavenly places. What is our relationship to sin now? And, and one way people take this is Paul says we've died to sin. And this can lead to a false view called Christian perfectionism. That is not what he's saying because it totally ignores the whole argument of 6 through 8. And especially chapter what? 7. You Christian perfectionists, just you wait. You think you're going to fix yourself. You think you're going to defeat sin. Just you wait. So what does it mean? It means that we have died to sin's penalty and therefore its power over us. In Romans, and especially in the Bible, sin and death are twin towers. They go together. They're wed together. There would be no death if there weren't sin. Sin leads to death. That's just logical, normal stuff. And it comes from Genesis 2, when God says, you have all this permission, one prohibition, and Adam and Eve decide, 
to go the prohibition route, not what you think in bourbon country. I mean, they disobey God. And God says if and when you do that, something fundamental will happen. You will die, die in the Hebrew. You will die, die. You won't just physically die. It's going to bring a spiritual death between you and me. I who used to walk with you in the cool, the garden of the day, all that stuff, that's going to change Adam and Eve. It's a penalty. It's a consequence. You probably know the verse, chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. It's the wages. It's the penalty. What he is saying is this. Christians who are justified in Christ are no longer liable to the penalty of sin. We are no longer liable to the wages of sin. In other words, when you sin, you don't have to now turn around and work it off. Anybody try to do that? You try to even things out, balance out. Well, I've blown it. I need to obey. That's not it. The penalty has been paid. You owe nothing. You may die physically, but you live in Christ. We just sang about this. Death may harm your body, but it cannot harm your soul, and it cannot harm the promised new body that you have in Christ. You and I will never ever pay the penalty for sin. Jesus did. You owe God nothing in that respect. Look at verse 9. What he's saying here is that Death has no jurisdiction over Jesus because he's died. He's been crucified. He paid the penalty for sin. It has no jurisdiction over Jesus anymore, and therefore those who are in Christ, it has no jurisdiction over you. The wages are paid in full. Do you live like that? Do you live out of that? So when our second daughter was wanting to go to college. She wanted to be some sort of ag engineer. She had never lived on a farm or done anything with ag, but she wanted to be an agricultural engineer. We thought, that's great. Where's the best school for ag engineering? And at that time, one of the top five was Purdue University. And we said to her, sweetheart, shoot for the stars and take what God gives you. We visited Purdue. We met a man named Dan. Dan really liked us. He treated us so kindly. I don't know why. It wasn't because of her chatty dad, I can tell you that. But Dan said, look, we're going to make sure she gets in this school. You will be provided for. Okay, Dan, what do you mean by that? He laid it out, and I was like, oh, my, thank you, Lord. Oh, this is awesome. So much so that she told other good schools when they said, are we your first choice? And if we are, you'll get this full scholarship. She said no, because she had integrity. And I said, oh, maybe you shouldn't say that. Maybe you should word it differently. No, I'm going to tell them the truth. Okay, that's good. Y'all never struggle with that. Don't worry about that. And that summer, we went to Scotland for two months for a mission thing. And I get this email. You owe let's just say thousands and thousands of dollars to Purdue University. And there were a couple little scholarships. I didn't have the heart to tell her. I just like, oh, no. And I, I emailed Dan 
Didn't even hear back from Dan. A week later, we get another email. You've been fully accepted. You owe nothing. Nothing. I told that girl, when you go on that campus, I don't care how cool your friends are trying to be, how sharp they're trying to be, how smart, you be the most thankful person ever. Because it's free. That doesn't get at the penalty. We, we didn't owe them anything in that sense, but I think what it does get at, it's a different jurisdiction, right? It's a full ride. And one who gets a full ride, even though they don't deserve it, will go on that campus very differently. And Paul says, that's what he's getting at here. Why are you entertaining all these excuses to sin and justifying your sin? Because of this woman you've given me, I can act like this. Or because of this church you've given me, I can talk like this. Or because of this job or boss. No. You've been given a full ride. You'd be the most thankful person in that marriage, the most thankful person in that office, the most thankful person in that extended family when you go to Thanksgiving. It changes everything. Our relationship to sin and the penalty of sin has changed. It has no jurisdiction over you. Secondly, our relationship to Jesus has changed. Look at verses 3 through 5. He gets at this baptism thing. And this is what intimidated me. I've read several commentators, listened to sermons. I'm going to try to surmise what I think he's saying here. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In a nutshell, I think what Paul is saying is this. You and I have a solidarity with Christ. Remember what we said a couple weeks ago with Adam, how Adam was our first representative? Jesus is the second Adam. He is our new representative. We now have solidarity with him. You are now associated with him. You are connected to him. You are tied to the one who died to sin and was raised for new life. And you have died with Him and in Him. You were connected to Him. How could you live any differently? But what about the baptism thing? 1 Corinthians 10 says this. Paul is talking to a Christian church that wants to give themselves permission to sin. Well, made this way and permitted to do this, grace this. And they're running back to idolatry, and Paul says this, I, want, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all, listen to this language, were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Baptized into Moses? What does that mean? What he's saying is this, you went through that wall of water with Moses. You left Egypt. 
You were delivered out of Egypt. You're not slaves anymore. You're not living in an idolatrous country where idols are worshipped. You have been freed from that. Live like it. You were baptized into Moses. You have solidarity with him. You're connected to him. You're tied to the one that was leading you through that. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 1. There were divisions in the church. Can you imagine that? And some people were going to this Christian leader. And some people were following this Christian leader. That, again, never happens today. It's amazing. And Paul says this, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you jokers. Because you'd be saying you were baptized in me. Some people were saying, I was baptized into Peter's name. I was baptized into so-and-so's name. You see what he's saying? Just as Jesus says, you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's your solidarity. There's your connection. There's your union. There's your marriage. There's your wedding. In the same way people were saying, I have solidarity with... Um, <clears throat> the charismatic faith or the reformed faith, and I'm better than you because of that. Paul's saying, no, no, no. Baptism pictures the solidarity that you now have with Christ. Your, look at what he says in verse 5. Your union with Christ. You are united to Christ. You participate in Christ. Discipleship to Christ. Let me just say it this way. When we are baptized, either as a new Christian with no church background, we don't even know what the word covenant means. Go to John's class, you'll learn it. Or as an infant, as a covenant child. And you've always heard about Jesus. Either way, they both point to the same thing. That you are united to one who cleanses you from sin who justifies you. They all point to the union you have with Jesus, the solidarity you now have with Jesus. Christ is your head. You are married to Him. And Paul therefore is saying this, if you are united to Him, do you see how, ready for this big word? Incongruent a life of running after sin would be. So in other words, when you have a friend who is struggling with same-sex attraction, very popular today, and they say, I still want to be a Christian and I want to live like this. Or you have a friend that wants to commit adultery or not be emotionally present with their spouse. And you're like, well, I could just go start talking about the behavior and how wrong that is and how this and that. What you should start with is you should ask them, who are you? Who are you? To whom are you wed? The way you're trying to live doesn't match. It's incongruous. You would say to a married man, you have a beautiful wife. Why are you looking at that? You may say to a single person, you are married to Christ. Why are, you, why are you looking at that? 
You might say to a U of L fan, why are you rooting for UK? Do you see what he's saying? I'm not trying to be funnier. It's incongruous. It doesn't match. As one of our deacons who drives a Prius said he put a bumper sticker on there that says, I love coal. Doesn't match. Come on, it really doesn't. Let's just be honest. Many of you have been around know this, but uh, I grew up in a church that almost associated baptism with salvation. And if you got baptized, you felt better about yourself, and you were always pushed to be baptized, and I was baptized at least three times, and nothing took. I lived a very incongruous life. And then when God really did find me, go after me, sought me out, brought me home, eventually became a minister, got ordained, and I get a phone call from my mother. Back then it was an answering machine, pushed a button, it was a message from my mother. Hey, I've got this thing for you, I'm going to send you in the mail, I think you're really going to like it. She wouldn't tell me what it was. And I learned that it was a baptismal certificate. It had my name on it. And I learned that for one year of my parents' life, the nearest church they lived to was a Presbyterian church. And Jesus is saying, you are out there in all your prolific sin. You're mine. You're mine. You're my beloved. I'm your beloved. And he finally one day woke me up to that fact. And I looked at that certificate and I just run around circles with it. It's the same reason children, hopefully your parents don't guilt you with this, but if you have been baptized as an infant, they say, remember your baptism. And if you're not a Christian or you've never been baptized, this is a good reason to say, do I really identify with Jesus? Do I really have solidarity with Him? And again, youth, we know y'all are, well, you're not here today, most of you. Well, we'll just skip that point. But your relationship to sin has changed and your relationship to Jesus has changed. You belong to Him. Finally, you have changed. Look at verses 6 through 11. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Murray's going to talk about that next week, the slavery thing. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. What's he talking about? Death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. Paul is saying this, because you were wed to Christ, you're united to Christ, you're connected to Christ, you have solidarity with Christ, your old self with Christ has been put to death. You are no longer your old self. You have been crucified with Him. You have been raised from the dead. You are now set free to live with Him. You are a new person. That old nature that sin had dominion over 
is not you anymore. And as John Owen said, and we'll see in Romans 7, sin can often feel like it dominates you, but that does not mean it has dominion. It's a whole different story. What Paul is saying is you are not the same person with the same nature anymore. Sin is no longer your master. You have died and been resurrected. I wrestled with trying to illustrate this with John 3 or John 11. I'm going to use both. John 3, Nicodemus, good person, totally doing it in the flesh, good moral person, religious guy, you'd want him in your church, not a Christian. And Jesus says things to him, and he is puzzled. And what Jesus is saying is you got to be born again, Nicodemus. You need a new heart. Your old self's got to die, and you've got to become totally a new person from the inside out. But, but again, that's here. But I think as important as John 11, because he keeps using this example of death and resurrection. What was Lazarus? How could you describe him in one word? Dead. You go up to him a hundred times, say, Lazarus, get up. He's not getting up. But when Jesus says, get up, boom, there's power. Now, the problem is where the illustration breaks up or breaks down is he still had his old nature, right? But you see the point. Those who have been touched by Jesus, brought to life by Jesus, fundamentally changed by Jesus, verse 10, now live to God. What do you see Lazarus doing later in the chapter? Spending a bunch of money to throw a banquet for Jesus and reclining with him. Chilling out with Jesus. What if that's how you saw discipleship? Throwing a party for Jesus and chilling out with Jesus. Why does that rub some of us the wrong way? Because you want to do something, don't you? You want to be Martha? And the first thing you got to see is you got to be Mary. Just be loved by him. Let it overflow in a feast to him. What is Peter's mother-in-law doing? She's just saying, Jesus, how do I serve you? You freed me from this dying, debilitating fever. Everybody touched by Jesus looks at Jesus and says, I want to go with you. I want to do something different. Usually he goes, just go home and tell everybody what happened. What if that were discipleship? Just go tell everybody what happened. Tell everybody how you've been changed. Okay. That's easy. We'll get to the Ten Commandments. You don't have to tell those people, do you? Because they just want to love God and love their neighbor. Because those who are changed by Jesus are fundamentally changed. Now, real quick, look at verses 11 through 14. Paul is saying the same thing here. You got to, verse 11, think about yourself differently. How are you thinking about yourself? Are you considering yourself as one who has to measure up is one who has to prove something to God or prove something to others? 
show God how alive you are. That's not it at all. He says, you must consider this is who you are now. You're a new person. And then live out of that. And that means, please hear me, there are yeses and nos in the Christian life. That's what he says. And he doesn't spell them all out here. But you can, you can orchestrate that all through Scripture. And you can put things together and you can learn what pleases God and what does not please God. But what he's saying is there are things that please God and things that don't please God. Live congruently with that. Don't present your members of your body, basically your body, this way. Present your body this way. The word for instrument there is actually, uh, the word is tool, right? He says, look at the instruments of your body as tools. And how do you use those tools now to love and serve God versus how you used to use those tools? And I know all of you are going to the sexual thing, but let's think about our tongues for a minute. The book of James says that our tongues can be like fire. You can set a whole, whole forest on fire just because of the way you talk. You know there's a difference in the Bible between a lament and a complaint? A complaint is accusing God by maligning his character. A complaint is when you accuse people by maligning their character. A lament, on the other hand, is an appeal to God with whatever is grieving you or frustrating you based on his character. It's very different. Paul is saying, how are you using your instruments? You should reflect on this for righteousness or unrighteousness. I was telling someone earlier this week, I, I'm, anytime you tell me to go get a tool, I just get scared. My dad was a tool guy, and we'd send me to this big old toolbox, and it was not organized ever, and he'd say, go get me a, a, a vice grip. And I'd always get vice grip and a channel lock confused. And I'd always bring in the channel. He says, that's the wrong tool. Paul's saying, you got these tools. Use them for righteousness. And then finally, verse 14, he ends with this. The same thing he's been saying. Again, this is this declaration. It's an indicative. It's something that is not a bar to live up to but a reality to grow into. It is what Paul says, it's what you've been taking, he says, take hold of this because Christ has taken hold of you. And this is how he says in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. You're not under that old reign of the law. We'll get to that more in a couple weeks. But you are now under grace. Live as those under grace. All right, I'm going to close with one more superhero illustration. I was trying to understand union with Christ better this week, and I pulled out a book called what? Union with Christ. Pulled it out, and I started looking at my notes in it, and I came across this illustration of Batman and Spider-Man. And I realized why I never liked Batman and why I like Spider-Man. Because Batman's not a superhero. 
I looked it up in Wikipedia. He says he does not possess superpowers. He has a bunch of gadgets. He's got a bunch of weapons. He's got fear. Kind of scary. Lives in a dark cave, I think. But he drives a cool car, right? But it's like all these external weapons. But not Spider-Man. Spider-Man has been fundamentally changed. Spider-Man was bit by a radioactive spider. And because of that, Spider-Man now has a new status and a new power at work in him. And he chooses to use his powers and strengths for good, according to Wikipedia. Let me ask you this question. Are you? Are you living as becomes a follower of Christ? For some of you, uh, Brian prayed this in our meeting this morning, our prayer time. Some of you are struggling with membership in the church because you know it means you're not just like having solidarity with Christ, which you want, but you're, you're having solidarity with his sinful, being changed bride. And that scares you because you want the perfect church. And I've said it a thousand times, you're not going to get it till heaven. Join an imperfect church now and be a member and use your membership to serve Jesus with this body. But we will not shame you if you don't. We will still love you and grace will abound. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Bible. We couldn't make this stuff up. We would tell everybody to do good and be good and we would either completely fail or we'd get prideful and think we're doing better than everybody else when we compared ourselves. That's not the gospel. We have a righteousness from you that is the power of God for salvation for anybody who believes. And I pray that people would believe because of Romans, because of the gospel, because of this message and the transforming changes and fundamental changes it gives us in status and life. We ask for your glory the good of the church, and the good of the world. In Christ's name, amen.